For the last month or so now, we have been going through the book of Mark together, the gospel according to Mark. And if we were just going to recap very quickly what we have learned to date, is we have been introduced to a king. Mark begins with this introduction, and I do encourage you, if you have your Bible with you today, to take it out. We'll be looking at that closely together today, as we do when we come here to hear the Word of God preached. We look at the Bible together. So whatever you, uh, whatever, um, you have your Bible in, whether that's uh, your uh, physical copy or your phone or some other device, I do encourage you to have that Bible out. Look at how Mark 1 begins, the beginning of the gospel, the good news, the herald, the glad tidings of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. From the very beginning of this book, Mark wants to introduce us to a king. And we looked several weeks ago at the the introduction to this king, John the Baptist coming to clear the way, to make a straight path, to make ready the way for the king. And then we see the king himself coming to be baptized of John the Baptist, not because he needed to repent of any sin, but because he was standing in the shoes of sinners like you and I. He was identifying with us. We saw his baptism, Jesus, or God the Father, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This relationship between the king and his father. We see the conquering of Jesus over the devil in verse number 12 and 13. He defeats the temptation of Satan himself in the wilderness. Then last week, we looked at the king himself coming and preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is right now. And we understood why was he was saying that, because the king was there. The time for the kingdom had come because the king had come. And the message of that is to repent and to believe the gospel. And at this point, Mark is going to bring us more into daily life for Jesus Christ. He's going to introduce exactly what this king is like. He's introduced the king. And now he's going to show us, here's what this king is like. Here's who he is. And if you look down with me in verse number 21... Verse 21 begins saying, and they, that's Jesus and his disciples, Jesus and his disciples, they went into Capernaum. So verse 21 through verse 34 is Jesus in the city of Capernaum, an actual place in the land of Israel. Now actually Capernaum, you can go to historical Capernaum today. You could go to the land of Israel and you could go visit Capernaum. It's deserted. No one lives there. It's ruins, but it's still a place that you could go visit. In fact, it's on the north uh, coast, the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Remember last week we identified you've got Jerusalem in the south, you've got the Dead Sea over to the southeast, and then if you go north into the northern part of Israel, you're in Galilee. That's where Jesus came from. And the Sea of Galilee is a long strip of a lake. Uh, I think it's about 14 miles long, about seven miles in uh, across, a fairly substantial lake. And on the northern coast, on the northern end of this lake, is the city of 
Capernaum. And we learn there that Jesus goes in to this synagogue and he teaches. And we are going to follow him as he goes through this day in Capernaum. And then continuing on throughout the, the, the chapter, first chapter of Mark, we're going to see what he did in Galilee, in the region of Galilee, in the northern part of Israel. Now, as we come and are introduced to what this king is like, what is this king that is being introduced to us? We're going to finish Mark chapter 1 in three sermons. We're going to work through the rest of Mark chapter 1 in three sermons. Today, we're going to see the sovereign king. That'll be the title of our message this morning, the sovereign king. Next week, we're going to see another aspect of who, what this king is like. He is the servant king. So he's the sovereign king. We'll look at that this morning. Next week, we'll look at the fact that he is the servant king. And then finally, in Mark chapter 1, we're going to identify him as the sympathetic king. The sovereign king, the servant king, the sympathetic king. And we're going to see each one of these just in this one chapter. But today, I want to focus on verse number 21 through verse number 28. Verse number 21 through verse 28, and we'll get to the other verses in this chapter over the next couple weeks. I want you to notice one thing about verse, number tw about verse 21 through 28. What happens is Jesus comes into the city of Capernaum. He goes into the, uh, 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 to the synagogue, the local Jewish meeting house, the church, if you will, in the church building in that day. And he teaches. And notice verse 22. The Bible says, And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had what? Authority. What is authority? What does it mean to have authority? Well, we think of someone who has authority as being the boss, as being in charge. I like what the, the, the Strong's Concordance tells us when it tells us the origins of this Greek word. It says something, and I'm paraphrasing, but it says, someone who has the liberty of doing what they please. That's kind of what authority is, isn't it, in, in a certain sense? Authority is being in charge. So notice their immediate reaction to Jesus' teaching is, whoa, he's in charge. He's in charge. But then keep on going to the end of this passage that we've read. Jesus then confronts a man in the synagogue who has an unclean spirit, a demon who is actually possessing him, who is living inside him. And Jesus casts him out and the, and the demon obeys him and leaves. And listen to what everyone says in verse 27. And they were all amazed insomuch that they questioned among themselves saying, what thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with... Authority commands he even the unclean spirits, the demons, and they do obey him. What's going on here is an, ex an exhibition of authority, the authority of the sovereign king. And so we're going to just divide these eight verses into three parts. The first one, we're going to look at divine instruction. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. And then we're going to go next to a demonic interruption. A demon who literally interrupts the teaching service and needs to be dealt with. And then we're going to be seeing finally the decisive impact on the people that were there to witness. And I hope also 
on us. Let's start, first of all, with this divine instruction. What is going on here? Well, they did church in the Jewish synagogue a little bit differently than we do church today. So we need to come into that context. What scholars tell us is, is that in these local synagogues in, say, Capernaum, in this individual city, the people would come together, but it wouldn't necessarily just be one guy who got up and preached. It might be different rabbis. Someone might get up and read from the Torah, the Old Testament law. Someone might get up and read from the prophets. Someone else might have some sayings that a previous rabbi had had as commentary. So it wouldn't have been so out of the ordinary that Jesus would have come to a new synagogue. He would have had already a reputation as being a teacher. And they would have said, Jesus, what, what do you have to say? What do you have? What, what doctrine do you have to present to us this morning in this Jewish synagogue? And Jesus gets up and he starts talking. And I want you to see the effect that this had on them. And they were astonished at his doctrine. Now, you need to understand the force of this Greek word that's used here. It literally means to strike someone. It's like, have you ever been punched in the gut? I don't mean physically. I mean metaphorically. Someone starts saying something, something happens, and your breath is taken away. It's, you can't believe it. That's what happened. It was like they were so struck by his doctrine, by the way he taught. He just got up and started speaking, and they just sat back in their seats and said, whoa, something's different here. Now, why? They were so shocked. They were so astonished because notice what our Bible says. Because he taught them, verse 22, as one that had authority and not as the scribes. Now, who are the scribes? The scribes were the ones who would normally teach. They were the ones who would normally give doctrine explaining the Old Testament law, explaining the prophets. Now, what does it mean that someone has authority? Let me explain it to you this way. I want you to imagine that you are attending a book club, and you have a book that you're all working through together, and you go sit around and talk. I don't know what you do at book clubs, but I'm just thinking, right? I'm hypothesizing what you might do at a book club. You open your book, and you've got your coffee, and, and you're talking. And maybe someone says, what did you think that chapter meant? What did you think that character was intended to do? What do you think about that aspect, that plot twist right there? What did you think about that? And you talk about the book, and everyone says, I think that means that. And, oh, this is what I took from that. And, oh, I read an, a, another illustration, another example, and I think it's kind Kind of like that, and you just talk. And then someone's sitting there in the book club next to you, and they say, no, actually, this is what it means. And everyone kind of stops and looks, and I'm sorry? No, 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 that's what the story means. Yeah, that character right there, that's what the author intended by that. This is, this is how it fits into the book. That plot twist, didn't you see that introduced five chapters before? Did you see that part? Did you? And everyone's sitting there and saying, Whoa, we didn't get that. That person is talking like they know what they're talking about. And then the person says, yeah, I wrote that book. And then you say, oh, oh, you are authorized to tell us what you meant by that. You are authorized to tell us what that plot twist was. You are authorized to speak so confidently. Do you see what Jesus was doing? Actually, they say that when the rabbis used to teach, they would not even as much quote from Scripture, they'd quote what other rabbis said about Scripture. 
They would teach the Old Testament and they would say, as Rabbi so-and-so explained it, and they were always reaching out to someone else to understand what the text said. And then Jesus got up and he said, this is what God intended the whole time. And they said, whoa, what? You're not citing any other rabbis? In fact, another chapter of the Bible has this same kind of example of people being astonished at the teaching of Jesus. Do you know what it was? Matthew chapter 7. At the end of Matthew chapter 7, which is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the same kind of verse is there. They were astonished at his doctrine because he taught them as one that had authority. Now, how does the Sermon on the Mount exhibit Jesus' authority? Because what, what did he say over and over in the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard that it has been said by them of old time. You've heard the rabbis teach you X, but I say unto you, but I say unto you, that's someone who has authority to tell you what the author of the book meant. That's the one that has authority to tell us exactly what God intended when he provided our Old Testament for us. Jesus could say conclusively because he was the sovereign king and the king gets to interpret the book that God gave for us. Now you say, why is this important to us today? This is really important to us because it says, tells us something about the Bible and how we should approach it. Do you know one of the fundamental divisions among even Christians today is whether this book is simply a kind of helpful um, hint, a, a helpful source of guidance if we need moral clarity. It's just some good recommendations to live life by. And those Christians who say this is the divine authority of God and I will live my life according to it. It's a fundamental divide among Christians today. And when we realize that Jesus came to teach with authority what the word of God said, we need to take that as our authority, as the word of God speaking to us. You see, there has been a move in our culture today toward a, a view, a theory of, called postmodernism. Postmodernism has affected the way we read books, we interpret music, we interpret art of every, uh, of every kind. And postmodernism says this. Postmodernism actually says a book has no meaning unless it has a reader. A book has no meaning. It, can't, it cannot be interpreted unless it has a reader who is interpreting it and bringing it one's own presuppositions, one's own ideas to it. That's the way that you glean the meaning of a book. And so some people approach the Bible the same way. Here's what the Bible means to me. Here's, here's how I interpret the Bible to, to kind of affect my life over here or over there. But the problem is that there is one meaning to the Bible because God is the author of it. God intended it to be in interpreted a particular way. In fact, the Bible even says that no prophecy of, of, of our Bible is of private interpretation. God has an intent. He has a meaning that he intends us to glean from it. And that's why we need to be students of the Bible. Not simply reading the Bible so it simply excuses our own behavior and twisting it to say what we want it to say. We need to take the Bible as the authority of God and interpret it as most from the text to get the meaning that God intended to give it. And that's why we preach here. 
on Sunday mornings. That's why we open our Bible and we deal with our text very carefully and very, I hope, in a way that is diligent and careful because ultimately we are subject to the authority of the one who gave us these words in the first place. So notice Jesus' authority, giving them the word of God clearly, consistently, and persuasively. It was very different from the scribes. So his divine instruction here has left them amazed, astonished. And then what would happen next would have had them even more astonished. Because notice, if you will, in verse number 23, and there was in their synagogue, in that church building, a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. The idea here is that he may have been just literally screaming, screeching, yelling. Now, I want you to put yourself in that place. If you've been attending Straight Gate Church for a while, you've known what it is to have interruptions in service, okay? You know what that is. I don't think I was there for it. My mom, I think, was. Maybe Ben was. I don't remember Apparently, at one time in this church, a man came into the front row and lit up a cigarette and just started smoking right in the front. And thank God for Jerry Kahn, because Jerry Kahn marched right up and snatched the cigarette out of his mouth and carried it out of the church, and that man went following right out of the church. We have had some really, really interesting interruptions, whether bats uh, flying around or people coming in and, and shouting out during the service. But this, this was a truly surprising one. You're in the middle of church, and someone's preaching with authority, and suddenly some, someone gets up in the middle of the pews and starts screaming. That's the picture of what happened. Now, notice what he was saying. Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Now, what's he saying here? The idea of what he's saying here is, we have nothing in common, you and me. That's the idea of what he's saying. We've got, there's nothing between us. Just let us be. You have nothing to do with us. Are you come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Now what's going on here? Let's start first of all by looking at this man. This is a human being. This is not some demon figure ghost in the crowd. This is a human being. But notice the Bible doesn't tell us anything really about who this human being is other than that he's in the synagogue and that he's possessed by a demon. There is a demonic spirit in him. This word for unclean spirit has the idea of morally impure, a morally, an evil spirit, a wicked spirit. A demon has literally possessed him. And you say, how does this work? Well, you can be indwelt by the spirit of God. Did you know that? Did you know if you're a Christian here this morning, you have the spirit of God. You have the person of God inside you, within you. He is inhabiting your body. Paul says in, in, uh, in our Bibles that, that we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit within us. And so if a divine spirit can inhabit the body of a person, so can a demonic spirit. So can literally a devil and this person, for whatever reason and in whatever, uh, 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 in whatever method he allowed that in, had a demonic spirit actually living within him. Now you say, is this common? Well, we see it all over our New Testaments. 
Jesus goes over and over and over again casting out demons. Now, some have said this was a particularly special time in history where, where demons were really trying to hinder the work of Jesus Christ and doing this far more often than they do today. Well, I don't know that we should take it like that. It could be that demonic uh, infestation, if you will, demonic empowerment is far more common than we realize today. But even if we were to say whether someone is, is truly indwelt by a demon, we know that a demonic spirit oppresses many around us. In fact, that is the course of this world. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2. It speaks of one um, of, of those who walk according to the course of this world. That's all of us before we came to Jesus. And we walk according to the prince of the power of the air. That's referring to Satan himself. The spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. Those who are rejecting Jesus Christ are being controlled in a real sense by the spirit of this Satan. By a demonic spirit. Whether it is indwelling them, it is nonetheless controlling them in a real way. In fact, Scripture says those who do not accept the gospel of Jesus Christ have had their minds blinded, blinded to the truth. It is a powerful, deceptive, satanic influence. And this man had it literally indwelling him. Notice that this demon used this man's vocal cords. The demon compelled the man to speak. It was coming out of his throat using his words and his language. And yet it was this unclean spirit who was speaking. And he was saying to Jesus, I want nothing to do with you. I want you to notice something else about this demon. This demon was terrified that's what's going on here. He is screaming out, not to praise Jesus. He is screaming out in fear. Notice what he says. Are you come to destroy us? Now notice that, that, that idea. He knew exactly who Jesus was. That's because demons and Satan himself are theologically orthodox. They know the Bible. They know the truth. In fact, James, the book of James tells us that the devils believe that there is one God, and what do they do? They tremble. The word there literally means to shudder like you're in fear. When this demon, how long had this demon, do you think, been coming to that, to that synagogue every Sabbath in that man? Hearing the rabbis teach, that didn't bother him at all. He wasn't bothered at all by their tradition layered on top of tradition. And friends, that would be very sobering to wonder how much of that same thing is happening in those churches that no longer preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are literally demonically oppressed people coming Sunday after Sunday thinking that they are pleasing God and the, and the devil it could not be more content to sit in that church Sunday after Sunday because they know they'll never hear the truth. What a sobering thing. The devil is the author of false religion. And we should not be surprised where false religion is at this place that demonic spirits are truly either inhabiting or empowering and controlling the lives of those adherents of that faith. But notice what happened when the truth came. That demon could no longer stay silent. That demon just cries out in fear, are you come to destroy us? Now what was he saying? What was he referring to? 
Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25? That one day Jesus is going to separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep, if you will, are going to go into his kingdom. Not physical sheep, of course. His spiritual sheep, those who have followed him. They're going to go into the kingdom prepared from, it, from, from, uh, from eternity past. What does he say will happen to the goats? Listen to what he says. Jesus will send them where? Into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Prepared for the devil and his angels. It seems to me at least, and you can have your own thought on this, it seems to me that what Jesus is saying is, is what this demon was saying was, are you going to send me straight to hell? Are you going to destroy me? Are you going to bring me into judgment right now? What a sobering thought. What a sobering word. This demon was terrified. And notice how Jesus responds to him. He gives him two commands. The first command is this. What is it? Hold your peace. Literally, silence. Be quiet. You see, why did Jesus tell this demon to be quiet? Well, think about what actually was happening there. Did Jesus need a PR agent who was a demon? Did Jesus need a publicity person to be the very, the, the, the very fallen angel who he was coming to destroy? No, of course not. And we can all imagine if someone were going out to events, going all over and passing out flyers for Straight Gate Church, and they were a known sinner or they were uh, living in a certain way, we'd say, no, we don't need that. We don't, we don't need that kind of PR. And Jesus told them, be quiet. You know who I am, but I don't want you telling. I don't want you being my publicity. Do you remember Paul in the same way when he was at Philippi? There was that, that girl who was known for, for um, having an evil spirit in her and prophesying and making all these predictions. And she went behind Paul and she started saying, hey, these are the servants of the Most High God. These are the servants of the Most High God. And Paul turns around and says, get out. Get out of her. We don't want that. There are even true words about Jesus that Jesus said, not from your mouth, not from your mouth. Jesus says, be silent. But then notice what else. He says, and come out of him. Come out of him. Leave him. And notice verse 26. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. The unclean spirit obeyed. Now, if you have kids, you know this. There are two ways that you can obey. One, you can obey out of love and a desire to please. And I got to say, as a dad, and you, th those of you who are dads know this, I don't know that there's a greater joy to a dad's heart when your child obeys you because they trust you and because they love you. What that does to a dad's heart is just truly incredible. But you know, dads, that there is another way that kids obey. And it's not because they love you and because they trust you necessarily. It's because you're the boss. And if they don't obey, there will be consequences. Those are two different ways to obey. Now, what about this one? We know the demon wasn't obeying Jesus because out of love and respect. He was obeying Jesus out of sheer force because he knew that Jesus was more powerful than he was and he was compelled to obey the king. 
Why are we calling this the sovereign king? Because the sovereign king has authority to command the devil and his angels, and they must obey. And so this unclean spirit tears him. He must, they, that man must have been thrashing and crying with a loud voice. He came out of him, and that man was delivered from that demonic infestation. And notice verse 27. And they were all amazed. They were all amazed. In other words, we need to not look at just divine instruction, not just a demonic interruption here, but what I'm going to call a decisive impact a decisive impact. Notice again, and they were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, what thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commands he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. Notice the first thing about the impact of this teaching and the impact of this authority. What did it cause them to have respect for? It caused them to have respect for Jesus himself. But notice what they, notice what they think about. What thing is this? What new? What's the next word? What new? Doctrine. What was Jesus doing in that synagogue? What was he doing? Did Jesus come there to cast out a demon? What did he come to do? Teach. Preach. He was interrupted. And he exercised divine, sovereign authority to say, out. But what did he come to do? He came to preach. And what happened in the exercise of his authority is that everyone said, wow, he's got some real doctrine. He's got the authority not just to speak, but to do. We better listen to him. Now, why do, you, why do I emphasize this? I emphasize that for this reason. Because when we focus on the authority of Jesus Christ, not just over doctrine, not just over demons, but as we'll see next week, over disease itself, it's very easy for us sometimes to wonder, why didn't he exercise his authority for my loved one? He healed all these people. Why didn't he heal the person that I loved? Why hasn't he healed me? Why hasn't he exercised his authority on my behalf? And friends, frankly, at our church in this last year and a year and a half, we have seen, we have grieved when we have seen that Jesus has exercised his authority to take people home not to heal them. We think of Grandma Rosa. We think of, of, of Gwen Davis. We think of Ron. We think of others who have suffered immensely. And we, some of us may be questioned as, God, Jesus has this authority. Why didn't he use it? Why didn't he exercise it? But notice why Jesus exercised his authority. What did Jesus come to do? Did he come first and foremost to heal? No, he came to preach. He came to teach. He came to announce the kingdom of God that heals people far beyond their bodies. It heals their eternal souls. And ultimately, the exercise of Jesus' authority was to come to give the stamp of God's approval on his doctrine, on the gospel that he came to announce, that sinners like you and like me could be saved eternally from the fires of hell, something that goes far beyond physical healing today. 
And so my encouragement and my comfort to you when we focus on the authority of Jesus Christ is when we are tempted to say, God, why didn't you exercise this authority to heal those that I love? To exercise the faith that says, the one who has authority exercised his authority in a way that will advance his kingdom. I don't know why Jesus didn't exercise sovereign authority to heal my father going on 10 years ago. But I know I trust, I trust that it ultimately was an exercise of authority that advanced his kingdom and that will advance his kingdom. And whatever example you're wondering, you're questioning about today, why didn't Jesus exercise this divine authority on my behalf? Won't we just trust that why Jesus came was to advance his kingdom and we can trust that whatever God decides and however Jesus exercises his authority today, we can trust that it will advance his kingdom. But there's something else here I think that's important. Notice the reaction of those who were there. How would you have reacted in that synagogue? Wouldn't you have been just as amazed, just as astonished at the exercise of that authority, a man who gets up and starts screaming, and instantly Jesus casts out this demon, and now he's at peace? How would you have responded? Would you have been amazed? You know, friends, I wonder if we are giving the due to the authority of Jesus Christ like we should. I wonder whether we are amazed by his authority like we should be. I wonder whether we are astonished at the power of Jesus Christ that he exercises today. What did Jesus leave his disciples with? In Matthew chapter 28, perhaps you remember these words, all power, that word is authority, all power, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, go. Because I have all authority, go and do what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Friends, I fear that today our churches look far, far too little at the authority of Jesus Christ, even today, the authority that could tell a demonic spirit, you be quiet and you leave, and he has to obey. I fear that we look far too little at that authority. We look at church as coming and doing our duties of coming and having friendship and fellowship together, and we don't realize that today Jesus has the authority to exercise his power over demonic spirits in this community today, that Jesus has authority to open blind eyes today that people may see and be saved, that Jesus has power to deliver people who are being oppressed by the devil today and free them, that he has power to change our lives from the inside out today. You see, if I don't believe that Jesus has that authority, I'm not going to seek for my life to be changed. Am I angry? Well, I don't, I don't really believe that Jesus can can change that. I'm just going to keep on doing the same way I've always lived. Am I struggling with this besetting sin? Am I doing things that I know God doesn't ple isn't pleased with? Oh well, I don't know that Jesus has power to change that. No, friends, he does. He has the power to change your life and mine from the inside out. He has the power to change every single person walking the streets of this city. And that's why we're called to go. Go! Why? Because Jesus has power. 
because Jesus has authority to command the forces of darkness and they will obey. This is what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, the servant of the Lord must not strive. He said they must not quarrel. They must not argue. They must not bicker. That's not who we as Christians are. We're not, argue, we're not argumentative. We're not in some kind of religious debate society. What are we? We're gentle. We're apt to teach. And we're meek. We are quiet in spirit. We want to live peaceably with people while we give them the truth. Why? If God peradventure, perhaps God might give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. What needs to happen? Jesus needs to exercise his authority. God gives repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. That's why we don't need to quarrel. That's why we don't need to argue. Because ultimately we are relying supremely on the sovereign authority of our king. Friends, do you believe that? Do you believe at your core that Jesus has all power to change your life and the life of others? If you don't believe that, you won't go. You won't tell others. You won't bring the gospel to them. You won't tell the truth to them. Or if you do, you'll get angry and you'll get hostile. No, Jesus has all authority. And may that authority that we read about today change us. May it amaze us. May it astonish us as we come even today. Before we close this morning, I'd like us to just look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Because this is a prayer that Paul had for the church at Ephesus, and it's a prayer that we all should have for ourselves. Notice in verse number 15 of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says, wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So Paul's saying, I'm praying for you, Ephesians. What's he praying for? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you. So I'm praying that you receive a gift. The gift of a spirit of wisdom and revelation, something to be revealed to us in the knowledge of him. Notice this, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Christians. He's saying Christians need to see something. What do they need to see? That ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now look at this. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought or he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Where is Jesus? At the right hand of God right now, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. What's he saying? He's saying, Christian, I want you really to understand how much authority Jesus has. I want you to understand how much power he has because it's going to change the way that you live today and for the rest of your life. And so friends, as we look this morning at this very simple story about the sovereign king, my question is, are you amazed? Are you believing? 
Are you taking that power of Jesus Christ, that authority that he has, and crying out to him and saying, God, show me how much power, show me how much authority there is that my life might be transformed and the lives of those around me. Friends, Jesus is the sovereign king. May each one of us live under his authority today. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we do serve a sovereign king, the one who not only has the authority to teach and to preach your gospel, but the one who has all authority to command and those demonic forces must obey. And Father, we know that whether here in this church or in this community, there are many that are being oppressed by the devil. The devil is working his works in their life. The spirit of him is now working in their existence. And oh, Father, I pray, we claim even this morning the power, the authority of the risen Christ who is at the right hand of God. Father, I pray that if there is anyone here who is being resisted, whose approach to the kingdom of God is being hindered by demonic influence, oh, Father, by the blood of Jesus, we claim that authority and we trust that that will not be allowed. And oh, I pray, Father, for those Christians here who need change in areas of their life. They need the authority of Jesus Christ the power of the Holy Spirit unleashed in their life to live the way you want them to live. May they submit to your authority this morning. May they rely on your power to change them from the inside out. May each one of us submit to our King again this morning. Let's pause with our heads bowed. Friend, if you don't know whether you've ever bowed the knee to Jesus as your King, you don't know whether you've ever trusted in him to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus said, straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. There's only one door into the kingdom of God. It's the door of trust in Jesus Christ. If you've never entered that door, you don't know whether you have. I'd love to talk to you after our service this morning. Just come find me. I'd love to take a Bible and show you how you can be saved, how you can enter into the kingdom of God. For those of you who are Christians this morning, are you living in the reality of the authority of Jesus Christ?